Hello, you're listening to the podcast of Bay Ridge Christian Church. Each Sunday, our aim is to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ from the text of the Bible and to catalyze the hearts of our hearers to love and gratitude towards God and all of His creation. We hope you enjoy this teaching, and we pray that you will be encouraged to trust in Jesus today. This morning, our text is going to be Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 to 6. I'll mention a little bit of the surrounding text, but I really want to focus in on Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 through 6. Um, We'll be looking at the uh, New International Version this morning. It'll be up here on the screen. You can follow along uh, on the screen or in your Bibles or uh, electronic device. Matthew chapter 19, beginning at verse 4. Hear now the words of your covenant Lord. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. I'm sure you've all been enjoying that since we got through the election, nobody's talking about politics anymore. It's completely dropped off our national conversation. Uh, (laughs) I wish nobody was talking about politics anymore, but I was thinking this week as I read through this text of one of the things that you see happen in political debates a lot today, and it's one of the reasons I can't even stand to watch most of the debates, which is the candidate is asked a question, and then they answer a completely different question, because they don't like the question they were asked, and they want to answer something else, which usually has little to nothing to do with the question they were actually asked, which they probably don't have a good answer for. Uh, Saturday Night Live last year even was making jokes about it, how they would be the candidates would be asked a question, and then they would turn it to something else, and the person asking the question was like, what, what does that have to do with what I just asked you? And They oftentimes do it simply to avoid difficult questions, and they do it for not good reasons. But I was reminded because Jesus oftentimes actually did something pretty similar, and he does that in this text here, but he's not doing it for the same reasons they are. They're doing it to avoid a question and to try and turn it to something else that they want to talk about. Jesus is doing it because the question they're asking is actually the wrong question. They've got wrong assumptions built into their question. And so they're wanting Jesus to answer a question that really is kind of a surface issue. And that that question we're going to talk about in a minute deals with divorce. Jesus says, I want to deal with something that's far deeper than that, what your question really ought to be about. And he's driving to the real issue rather than the superficial one. So we're going to talk about today marriage when two become one, what Jesus is teaching in this text, what it means for us today. So let's start by looking at the background to Jesus' teaching. Now, the background is that there is a debate in Judaism over marriage and divorce. And they, their question, notice in Matthew 19, verse 3, says that they ask him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Now, the underlying Greek is actually just for every reason. And what it's referring back to is Deuteronomy 24. In Deuteronomy 24, 1, 
you can, you can read that it says, if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds, quote, something indecent about her, he writes her a certificate of divorce and gives it to her and sends her from his house. And the major debate in the time was, well, what was meant by something indecent? And so the Pharisees are getting at that with this thing. Can, can he divorce a, a woman for every reason? Is this a wide open thing, Jesus? Is something indecent mean any reason and every reason, or is it something more restrictive? And there were two main schools of thought. One of them was from the school of thought that had been started by uh, Shammai, and they said indecent equals sexual sin. If he sees that she has committed adultery or fornication or some other sexual sin, then he can say, well, that's what Moses was talking about. The school of Hillel was the other major school, and he said indecent equaled anything unpleasing. And specifically said, if she spoils a dish when she makes it for supper, you can divorce her. Uh, later on, after the time of Jesus, a rabbi named Aqaba came up and said, something indecent can simply mean, I've been looking around and this woman looks better to me than you do. That's something indecent about you. I can divorce you and send you away. The amazing thing is, that school is the one that won out in the end, that that was what was meant. And so they are asking this, and we're specifically told they're trying to test Jesus. They're trying to trap him because they know no matter which way he speaks, he's going to upset a whole group of people. And it also deals with, uh, you know, Herod had taken another wife, and he kind of was big, being a big proponent of the school of Hillel. Hey, I found something indecent about her. It doesn't really matter what. I've sent her away, and I've taken my brother's wife to be my own. And that's how John the Baptist, you remember, had, had been beheaded. And so they're trying to trap Jesus. And let me be clear, there's no question from Jesus' words the school of Hillel is wrong. That has nothing to do with what Deuteronomy 24, 1 is about, okay? They're actually turning the text on its head. But Jesus doesn't even want to answer that. And his reason is, we got to go a lot deeper than what you're even asking. You are asking as if the goal is to figure out when can I get divorced and make that okay before God? That's my focus. And Jesus is saying that that's not the focus at all. So Jesus gives a radical teaching on marriage. And when I say radical, I'm going back to what the word originally meant. We've messed it up today. The word radical in Latin originally meant going to the root. The radix was the root. It was that which was central, that which was most important, that which ought to be the focus. And so Jesus says here in verses 4 and 6, haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made the male and female. And he said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but they're one. So what God has joined together, let not man separate. And so Jesus is superseding their question by going back to the original uh, teaching text on marriage. And this was a recognized principle in Jewish debate. If I brought up something in Isaiah, and you brought up something from, that Moses wrote, you had the strong argument because it was the more original argument. It was the foundational argument, and Isaiah was going to have to be read uh, relative to that text. And so Jesus here is saying, well, here's how I'm going to one-up it. I'm not going to get an earlier text from Moses. I'm going to go back to creation itself. I'm going to go back to Genesis 1 and 2, and I'm going to say, so what did God say about marriage in Genesis 1 and 2? You're wanting to question the Mosaic law. 
I'm wanting to go back to creation itself. You're debating divorce. I want to talk about marriage and what marriage is actually about. And this was really important. We need to understand it's not that just Jesus is trying to avoid a tough question. What he's really getting at is you all have turned God's intent in the Mosaic law on its head. God had originally given this to us to really, to be blunt, to protect women. Because men oftentimes in the ancient Near East would, they could have polygamous marriages, they could have many wives, so they would basically send one wife away, say, I'm not going to take care of you anymore, but I'm not going to give you a bill of divorce so you can't marry someone else. So basically, you're going to be left destitute for the rest of your life. And Deuteronomy 24 was saying, no, you can't do that. If you are in a divorce, you are going to make sure the woman is cared for. And Jesus is saying, y'all have turned this whole thing down up, upside his head so that in Hillel's idea, hey, if she just you know, burns supper a little bit tonight, I can get rid of her. And Jesus is saying, that's not the intent. And so he actually goes back to Genesis 1.27 and says, what you're forgetting is the original text about marriage is God made them male and female, and they're both the image of God. So when we start asking this question, what we're talking about is, how do I treat the image of God? And what is, what is it about marriage that reflects the image of God? And when you understand that, most of your questions about divorce are going to drop away because you're going to really understand who it is. Now, Jesus is doing the same thing, actually, that Malachi had done. Many of us have heard today, if I asked you, name an Old Testament verse about divorce, probably the one that comes to mind for almost everybody is God hates divorce. That's in Malachi chapter 2. What's interesting is if you go back and read Malachi 2, 14 to 16, where that occurs, Malachi says, you all are in trouble before God because you're breaking your covenant with your wife. And God, had originally at creation, had made male and female. He brought us out. He gives basically the same points that Jesus is bringing out here. And so Jesus is saying, Malachi already had it right. He already told y'all how to read the earlier text which is creation teaches us regarding marriage. And those are the questions you ought to be asking and not trying to break faith with the wife that God has brought you together with. You should be listening and answering that. The amazing thing is, for all of the debating they did, and they wrote reams of paper on Deuteronomy 24.1 and what it means to have something indecent, they hardly mentioned, I hate divorce, says the Lord your God, at all. That text didn't get debated at all. No ink was spilt over that text because they weren't really interested in that. And this speaks to us before we dive into what the implications are. This is true of all of us. I'm not just getting on them. We often look for acceptable reasons to get around what God has intended. And as it relates to marriage, so often we look for acceptable reasons to end a marriage but Jesus' focus is on what marriage is and how I can strengthen the marriage. Not, well, under what circumstances can I end this, but how do I strengthen what is? So let's unpack what Jesus is saying here. Jesus gives us five major principles, and I'm going to run through these fairly quickly, and then we're going to actually spend most of the time on applying the word. First principle. Marriage is a divine institution. It's a divine institution. See, the Pharisees were all kind of acting like it was something Moses had made or kind of how can we get around this? And Jesus goes back and says, first off, you need to remember God's the one made marriage. And he did it for a specific reason. Notice he says, at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said. 
Now that and said is interesting because some scholars try to get around it. They want to say, well, and Jesus is here saying, you know, uh, it's as if it says, haven't you read Jesus replied that at the beginning the creator made the male and female, and then Jesus said, but I don't really think that's what's going on here. What's really happening is Jesus is taking the words in Genesis 2, which were originally not spoken directly by God, but he's pointing out, but this is God's word. God said this. So you need to pay attention to what it is God said. The creator made us, and the creator in his word has spoken about what marriage is about. And notice at the end there in verse 6, and what God has joined together. So Jesus here in three different ways is referencing God as our creator. God is the one who has spoken regarding marriage, and God is the one who is actively involved in each and every marriage to join two people together. In marriage, it is God who is at work. It is God's institution, it is governed by God's word, and it is actually activated and implemented by God himself. Marriage is created by God, and God is the one who joins people together in marriage. The first principle right off, when Jesus says that, that ought to make us take a step back and say, okay, this isn't just something I can monkey with. This is the very institution and creation of God. Second principle, marriage is between men and women. Notice here, it says, haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? And then notice, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. So Jesus says, you go back to the beginning and you notice that God made them male and female. And notice he uses the male and female terms throughout. There's male and female, man, father, mother, wife. The terms throughout, Jesus isn't indistinct regarding them. He specifically is bringing out maleness and femaleness. Now he's doing this first off because he's reminding them male and female together are the image of God. The first text he's quoting is Genesis 1:27, where God said, I'm going to make man in our image. And so he made them in his image, male and female. So male and female are the image of God. And so Jesus is saying, you all are liking to have these debates about how easily you can send your wife away. She's the image of God. That's who you're dealing with. And so when you're trying to find a way to send her off, you're doing this with the image of God. And so he's telling them that male and female are the image of God and are therefore equal. But he's also pointing out that male and female are equal, but they are not identical. They are not interchangeable, and their maleness and femaleness is not inconsequential. They are equal, but they are not identical, interchangeable, and that the fact that they are male and female is not inconsequential when we talk about marriage, nor actually anything else in life. It is very, very important. And so our existence as male and female is central to marriage. This obviously has major implications in our current culture. Today I'm not really talking about that because that's not the central point. I'm going to talk about it more in after hours and what this has to say regarding the LGBTQ movement and all of that because there are huge implications and despite what people like to say that Jesus hasn't spoken on it, he has. It was his word in Genesis 1. He's reiterating it here in Matthew 19 and he speaks volumes about all of these issues. So if you're interested in that particular topic, tune in come Tuesday, and I'll talk about it more in after hours. Thirdly, 
Marriage is between two people. It's not just one man and many women or one woman and many men. It's between two people. Notice he says, this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one. Jesus is here actually even stressing this in a way that it was not in the original account. He's bringing out the implication, and he specifies two twice because he wants them to understand polygamy and polyandry was not God's original intent in marriage. It had been allowed under the Mosaic Covenant because of our sinful, wicked hearts. When they're going to come back and ask about divorce, Jesus says, all those things were allowed because your hearts are wicked. But I'm talking about what God actually desires, what God actually wants. Now, Jews had largely recognized this by Jesus' time. Polygamy was very, very rare. It was virtually unknown among the Jews. But what was not unknown was, in essence, serial monogamy. I have multiple women. I can just do it by divorcing and getting me a different woman. Okay? And Jesus is saying no, that that's, that's not the point of marriage. Marriage is two people that are being joined together and in a lifelong bond. According to Jesus, marriage at its core is about the joining of one man and one woman in an exclusive lifelong bond. That's what marriage is given for. So can you see why he's saying your question is so far off? Because you're not even understanding why it's here, what marriage is about. Fourth, this leads to the idea that if that is true, marriage should be the strongest bond in all of life. In verse 5, he says, A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. The marriage bond, Jesus is saying, is stronger than your bond with your parents, your family, your clan. Now, they didn't have a problem regarding the polygamy thing. That was, that, that intention they, they could fairly well accept. This was almost scandalous in the ancient world because people would get divorced. They would set them aside, but, but my clan, my family, that's forever. We have the saying that we kind of do, you know, blood is thicker than water, right? I remember actually, I had my grandmother years ago, God rest her soul, I love her, but she got upset when Linda and I were down visiting one time. She did not like the way Linda was, was training our children, and you know, that she, they were being required to actually gasp, eat their supper, or they couldn't get a snack, and she was upset about that, and she had a lot of pressure on at the time, but Linda had already gone out, was putting the kids in the van, and my grandmother came to me, and she said, honey, you need to hear me. Blood is thicker than water. And I looked at her and I said, oh, Mama, I love you with all my heart. But I didn't pick this family. I was born into it. And there are three billion women on the planet, and that's the one I wanted. So let me tell you something. No. No. I'm with her. And that's the way it is, okay? That's how it's supposed to be. Jesus says this is the strongest bond of life. Ties with parents might be severed, and in fact, they eventually are. But the marriage bond was never intended to be severed. Marriage is intended by God to be the one lifelong, never-to-be-severed bond. You see, we live in a world where the Beatles sing, all you need is love, and then they break up. 
right? And we move on. And I find somebody, and if you can't love, you know, the one you came with, then just love the one you're with. That's our world. Jesus says, no, no. Every other bond might get broken. Every other bond. This is a bond that when God joins it together, you don't let this thing get torn apart. You don't let this thing get torn apart. That leads to the final point. The goal, according to Jesus, is not avoiding divorce or when divorce is acceptable, which is what their whole question was premised on. The goal is the two becoming one. That's the entire point of marriage. So notice again, for this reason, a man leaves his father and mother. He is united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. And therefore, what God has joined together, don't let anyone separate. The reason for leaving is not so that I can leave again later, or I can find the exact circumstances under which I can leave. The reason for leaving is that the two would become one. This is actually the command Jesus is getting out. The original command relative to marriage was not, well, if you're going to get divorced, here's the proper circumstances. What's the command in marriage? You two are to be one. Avoiding divorce is not the goal of marriage. Becoming totally united as one, that's God's goal in marriage. That's God's purpose in marriage. Divorce is simply the formal recognition that we have already disobeyed God's ultimate purpose in marriage. That's all it is. It's formally stamping on that long ago we gave up on what God had commanded us to do in marriage in the first place. Two are to be one. So please hear me. God hates divorce. But he also hates us refusing to do the hard work required for the two to become one. And we act sometimes as if I can get there and say, oh God, here I am. I wanted to kill Linda, but I didn't. So I got like an extra room on my little cabin here in glory for that, right, Lord? And what God would say is, you didn't do what I asked you to do. What I asked you to do was to become one with that person I had joined you with. That's the question. Did you become one? Not, did you get divorced? That's not the question. That's, that's the problem they've got. The question is, did the two become one? So what we're going to do is we're going to apply the word and talk about what it means to become one. And as I wrestled through these, and you might do the same thing, you might find yourself wishing Jesus had just answered the other question. Because this is a lot more challenging. See, I would have probably been there saying, Jesus, just answer the question they gave. We're getting into trouble now. You're starting to meddle. Okay? But how do we apply this? How do the two become one? That's what it's about. Our whole culture is going to go crazy on Tuesday, and we got Valentine's, and we do all this. There are very few people where the two are trying to become one. And that's what it's about. So I want to ask two questions. First, am I separating what God has joined together? Am I separating what God has joined together? Now, obviously, divorce would be that, and that is there. But Jesus is trying to say there's something a lot deeper than that. So there are many ways 
I can separate what God has joined. I could live and end up being married to Linda 60 years, God grant it, but have spent 60 years separating what God had joined. So what are some of the ways? Here's the first one. Words. Words that undermine, words that disrespect, words that dishonor. Words that say, you're such a fill in the blank. I wish I had never, you disgust me, you, you can pick the words. I cannot get divorced, but commit those words and words that are spoken and they are intended to inflict harm. Now, I'm going to point out several things this morning that I have done wrong. But I want to let you know that I can tell you in 32 and a half years, I have never spoken to my wife that way. Just don't. And she has never spoken to me that way. Divorce is the four-letter word in our house. Separation is the four-letter word in our house. It's, it's not on, the, it's not on the, the, the list of things that are even possible. There are ways that we simply do not talk to one another because those things separate what God has joined. And folks, I am, I am a sack of sin. If I can do it, you can do it. It's just a simple choice. These are things that are not going to be said. Because sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. We all know better than that, don't we? Words can inflict deep, lasting wounds. So we don't speak them. We do not speak them. Secondly, anger. We're going to skip that one. Yes. After hours that I'll put out in 2050. I wish I could say I had never reacted in anger. But if you've been around here very long, you know that that is one of my besetting sins. And anger has been there. And anger has divided. I can remember the first time I had told Linda I had an anger problem. And she, she smiled like many of you do and didn't believe me. And then we were going for a week in West Virginia because we didn't really get a honeymoon. The Marine Corps didn't give me any time off. And we'd finally gotten a week and we were going away to West Virginia to stay up in this rustic cabin that her parents had. And on the way, we were stopping to get her a passport because I was going to be stationed in Okinawa. And so we had to get her a passport so she could go with me. And I got stuck in downtown DC. You know those sections where everything is a one-way street? And I could not figure the puzzle out to get back on the right side of the one-way street. And as I kept driving by and she kept standing there, I kept getting angrier and angrier and angrier. And I finally whipped an illegal U-turn. She got in the car, smiled, and said something about it. And said, you know, wow, you did a U-turn. What if the police officer stopped? I said, if he stops me, I will punch his running lights out, and it will be all over. And I mean, all of this anger came out, and the look on my wife's face in that moment because of my anger. And I have had anger that I directed towards my wife, that I directed towards my children, that was ungodly and sinful. And it separates what God has joined. 
because she doesn't want to join my anger. She doesn't want to be part of that. And anger destroys. That's why there is a righteous anger. But let me tell you, there are certain emotions that are so dangerous, God, even when he says you can have it, attaches warnings. And anger is one where God said, okay, you can be angry, but do not sin. He never says love, but do not sin. Have joy, but do not sin. Okay, why be angry, but don't sin? Because that is, a, that is an emotion that runs so close to sin. You better be careful. Anger towards your spouse divides. Anger just in general divides. I recently had another morning where I'd been wrestling with something on a computer. I was trying to work on this website and trying to pay something and time after time. I'd been working on it for a couple of days and it wouldn't accept this stuff. And I was all upset and Linda was asleep. And she walked by my office as I said, if I could find the idiot that designed this, I swear to God, he should be strapped on the Iron Maiden or something like that. And my wife looked at me, having just woken up, and said, you swear that to God. <laughs> I wish I could tell you I received your rebuke. <laughs> what I did was I responded in anger at her. And then I had to, by the grace of God, thanks be to God, a few minutes later, call her and say, I am sorry. What I said was wrong. You were correct. My anger had no place. Will you please forgive me? I want to restore what my anger divided. Friends, anger breaks apart what God has joined. Thirdly, some of you laugh at my anger, and you don't have that problem. You just withdraw. And it gets icy in there. If I hug you at that moment, I get frostbite on my shoulder. Because <laughs> we do the silent treatment. Because that's the heart of why God made marriage. Adam, here's Eve. Whenever you don't like something, just don't talk to her for three days. That gets close to home, doesn't it? But see, the two being one is the opposite of withdrawing. It's pressing in. It's pressing in. But we are so prone to want to withdraw. And usually, if you're not angry, you're a withdrawing person. We tend to one or the other. But both of them separate what God has joined. One does it by heat, one does it by ice. But they're still both doing the same thing. How about thoughts? Boy, the things I can think that I wouldn't say or do. But I can give in to thoughts. I can give in to wrestlings and problems. I can have negative thoughts come up. See, believe it or not, Linda and I, after 33 years, are still not the same. And there are certain ways we're very different. I went through the strange experience of seven, at 17 going to a military academy. I was already structured and organized, and by the time the Naval Academy and the Marine Corps got through warping me, that thing was in there, and it's not always easy to live with. So you know the stereotype of the husband who comes in and kicks his shoes off and throws his stuff everywhere? No, 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 not in our house. That is not the way we are. 
okay? If you're tripping over somebody's shoes, it won't be mine. I'll leave it up to you to figure out who they might be. So I trip over the shoes, and then the thought can start popping into my head. Why in the world? And I have a choice. I can let that thought come. I can dwell on that thought. I can feed it, water it, encourage it to grow, and separate what God has joined. Or I can say, why in the world did God give me such a good wife? Why have I had a faithful partner for 33 years? The choice is totally up to me. I can focus on the things where we are different and we struggle, or I can focus on why God brought us together, which, friends, by the way, is very often the very things I'm struggling with because we're different, and he brought us together for that reason. I can give in and have thoughts of despair and hopelessness. Two become one. We're so far apart, we're never going to be able to get this thing back together. I'm not even sure that I should have married this person. I wonder if. Let me tell you, when you hear that voice, I will tell you now who it is. That is Satan. That is Satan. You wonder what his voice sounds like? It sounds like that thought. And what you do at that moment is you choose to separate what God has joined, or you choose to say, oh, no, 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 we're not going down that road. I will not think that. I will not give place to that. What God has joined together, he did for his own reasons, he did for his own purposes, and I'm going to embrace that. I'm going to think the best. I'm going to pray. I'm going to hope and believe and trust. Which way do I go? This is a lot deeper than when can we get a divorce, isn't it? How about inappropriate, um, uh, well, let, me, let me add one other one here for just a second, hopelessness, I'm going to come back to it. Don't ever give in to despair and hopelessness. Jesus has come to replace that. We have no reason to despair. Christ will win. We should never give in. We should never. There is no situation that is without hope because the sovereign God is active. For me to say my marriage is beyond hope is for me to say God's not really sovereign. He's not really sovereign. How about inappropriate emotional attachments to other people? I'm not even saying that I've actually committed adultery. I just have found somebody else that I've become emotionally attached to. And this could be someone of the opposite sex, which is completely wrong. We ought not do. It gets us in big trouble. It could also be my children, because God is going to separate them from me. But I can take all of that is supposed to be poured into joining to my spouse and poured into joining to my children or to friends. Could even be to a hobby or whatever else. But all of that emotional attaching drive is supposed to be towards my spouse. Now, let me give one other one, because some of you may be sitting here, and, and I want to be aware of this. Some of you are saying, well, I'm single. What does this have to do with me? It actually has a lot to do. Notice Jesus doesn't just say, therefore, what God has joined together, you too don't separate. But let no one separate. Here's one last area. 
I can encourage or justify any of these in somebody else who's married. You know, you're right. He is that way. You know, you're right. This situation really is beyond hope. Because guess what we're looking for? When, when, I, when I'm doing something that I know is probably not right, do I look for people who will correct me? Or do I look for somebody who's going to say, you're right. You, and that really is okay for you to do that. That's what we look for. And if I join in that, I am separating what God has joined. So, do we do any of those things? Now, again, these all do that. I want us to see that what Jesus is getting at is, this is a long process of separating what God has joined, and divorce is most often simply the sad end of that long process that's comprised of these practices which have separated us long before. Show me people who speak words that tear each other down, that are angry, that withdraw from one another, that give place to thoughts that separate and divide rather than join, who then find inappropriate emotional attachment. And it really could be other people, it could be my job, it could be something else. I find something else to be central rather than my relationship with them. And I get people who will encourage that. We are, we are almost guaranteeing we are heading for divorce. Now that's one half. Let's flip the thing around and ask the question the other way. Am I working to maintain what God has joined? Am I working to maintain it? Now Jesus tells us that God has joined together, that they are no longer two but one. In marriage, the two become one. But this does not mean, and therefore it's done. No, that is worked out over the remainder of life. And this is true of almost all important biblical doctrines. When, when we did a water baptism a couple of weeks ago, Wyatt was actually united with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection. Does that mean his sanctification is complete? No. That's worked out over the rest of life. Okay? Everything important in Scripture. We are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. Does that mean that my sanctification is complete? No. Biblically, what God has done and what God declares to be so is worked out in practice, and the church is one. But is there work to be done there? Oh, yeah. So Paul says, maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Well, the same thing is true here. So there are many ways we can encourage that oneness in marriage rather than undermining it. Let me go over several of them. Number one, I mean, first off, I will say you could pretty much take everything on the previous slide and flip it. I'm not going to do that, but in other words, speak good words to each other. Rather than anger, fill it with peace and joy. Rather than withdrawal, do a pressing in. You, you could do that with those. I'll leave that to you. Let me give up several of them. Number one, growing together spiritually. If we are believers and Christ is the center of our life, then the only way for the two to become one is we have to grow together spiritually. That means we pray together. That means we are in the Word. We, we talk about the Scripture together. We go to church together. We are part of a small group. Show me a couple that is not doing these things together. I'll show you a couple that's on their way to separating what God has joined. It's important that we do these things and we do them together, that we grow together. And a healthy spiritual life is going to include all the things I just mentioned, prayer, word, fellowship, 
gathering with God's people for worship, all of those are part of it. Do we do that? And do we encourage our spouse in that? I particularly want to say to the men, this is particularly our responsibility to do. It was not Linda's responsibility for me to lead family devotions. It was my responsibility. And again, didn't matter whether I was tired or not. My kids used to have to wake me up sometimes because Daddy was tired. But we're going to do family devotions. We're going to be together in the Word. It's my responsibility to say, Linda, let's spend some time in prayer together. It's my responsibility to make sure we gather with God's people. Are we doing that? Secondly, communication. Now, I talked about bad words a few minutes ago, but here I'm talking about not even just communication about deep issues. I'm talking about just spending time talking together, spending time uh, dreaming together, enjoying one another. I'm talking about positive, unifying conversation. I have noticed one thing through many years, that oftentimes couples who are finding themselves arguing a lot, when I poke and probe around, they spend almost no time in just light, enjoyable conversation. And I have a strong philosophy. There is a certain amount of junk at the bottom of the glass of your marriage, and you cannot reduce that amount of junk. You can't. All you can do is keep pouring lots of good stuff in so that it dilutes the amount of junk. That's what you got to do. So that means lots of enjoyable, positive conversation. Linda and I spend a lot of time talking about whatever that is not fraught with landmines and difficulties because there's enough of those conversations going to have to happen anyway. I want to enjoy doing that together. Just spending time talking. How often do you just talk with your spouse? If you are parents, let me give you a piece of advice. When my kids were young, and they all knew this, I, I learned this at a seminar one time, Linda got 15 minutes every night. 15 minutes. Where I told our kids, for the next 15 minutes I'm with your mom. And they would come rushing in because they wanted to interrupt that. Okay, it's just their nature and way. And I would joke and say, is somebody like bleeding to death in there? Am I gonna be in the emergency room in the next few minutes? No, then you're an orphan for the next 13 minutes. I'm with your mom. To which they would say, y'all aren't even talking about anything important. It doesn't matter. Your mom can talk with me about whatever your mom wants to talk with because she's been dealing with you little critters all day long. Okay? If you can't do anything else, get 15 minutes to do that. A third thing, joining in common purpose together. Having common goals, dreaming and working together on things big and small. The phrase here is that God has joined them together. It's actually used of a yoke where you take two oxen and you put them together and they pull in the same direction. And so we are to be joined together. Now, this could be a small thing. Right now, Linda and I are planning, we're going to be doing a vacation in May where we're starting in Chicago and we're going down Route 66 through Illinois and Missouri. And we're just having fun watching some documentaries, looking at a few books, kind of talking and dreaming about what it is we want to do that's just going to be fun. And we're planning this thing out together. Do, do we want to go see a baseball game at Wrigley Field? Yes, we do. Do we want to do this? Do we want to do that? Honey, would you like to go to the top of a really tall building and test your fear of heights? Those are the kind of conversations we're having. We're joining together, we're being yoked together, and it pulls us together. Are we doing that? Another thing, do we hope, think, and speak the best of one another 
and to one another. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13, love always hopes, believes, trusts, perseveres. That's what love is like. If I love Linda, I hope and believe and speak the best about Linda. Proverbs 31 says that the Proverbs 31 woman receives praise at the city gates. And the reason, if you look at it in context, is because who's sitting at the city gates? Her husband. And what is he doing at the city gate? He's speaking well of her. Okay? Not, yeah, the old ball and chain. No. My treasure. My joy. Do we speak well of and to one another? How often do you simply tell your spouse, I love you? I want to encourage the habit. When Linda and I wake up in the middle of the night and toss and turn, we say, I love you, over and over again. I couldn't begin to count the number of times in a day we say to each other, I love you. I am so grateful for you. I am glad God gave you to me. It makes it a lot harder to turn on the next minute and say, you are such a... It's almost impossible to do. It, it just sucks the oxygen away from those kind of statements. I heard a statement recently, and I want to encourage you this, because this is not Pollyanna, okay? The statement was this, hope, hope inspires the good to reveal itself. Hope inspires the good to reveal itself. If you are married, your spouse has good inside them, particularly if they are a believer. There is lots of good in there. What will inspire it to reveal itself? You're such a, or I love you. I am grateful for you. I know God has good for us. If you want the good to be revealed, speak and think and hope. If you want the bad to be revealed, speak and think thoughts of hopelessness and despair. Another one, the physical. This is the obvious literal meaning of one flesh. The first time everybody heard this Bible verse, they thought the two will become one flesh. We think of physical. And Paul actually tells us in 1 Corinthians 6, 16, you can look it up, that it is actually that, okay? But it's even deeper than that. What is the Hebrew verb for Adam had sexual relations with Eve? To know. That's not, uh, I don't want to say that other word. That's not what it's about. It's the deepest part. It is Adam knew Eve. See, we have turned this on our head. I just heard a thing last week where they, they've been doing a thing and saying what's getting more and more common in our culture now is for young people who are seeing each other to have sex and that's not important. That doesn't indicate any kind of degree of importance to this relationship. That's reserved when they, like, meet my family the first time. Can I tell you that is, like, the dumbest thing I've ever heard of? That's stupid. The physical relationship is to know. And one of the problems is we, we destroy the rest of the relationship by doing that too early, and it undermines the relationship. That's why God told us you need to wait until you're married, because this thing becomes symbiotic. It just feeds back into itself. That the more I know Linda, the more natural it is for us to have a physical component to our relationship, and the more that we have that, the more it cements and glues together all the other areas. 
And so it is a natural feedback, which is why Paul actually said in 1 Corinthians 7, look, if you're married, this is a normal part of marriage. If you decide that you're not going to do this, then take several days at most and devote yourself to prayer and fasting and then come back together because this is part of what God has intended. God never intended a non-physical marriage relationship. He just didn't. And physical includes everything from holding hands all the way through, just being with one another. And then the uh, one, two more things. Uh, going to a marriage conference or reading a book together. This unifies us. Linda and I, for probably the first 10 years, did this nonstop. We were always either going to a conference, listening to a radio program together, watching a video series, reading a book that had something to do with our family and how do we build together. And then we have periodically done that afterwards as well. Greg has mentioned before, there's a marriage conference coming up. I want to encourage you. They are good. They are worthwhile. They are an investment in us being together. And then the last thing, which we can all do, even if you're called to be single, is encourage the above. If somebody speaks hopeless words, what do we do back? Speak words of hope. Turn it. Encourage them. Pray with them. Help them. Encourage them to do these things because that's how the marriage is joined. I will say, if you look and you say, wow, that first list sounds more like me than the second list, and if you need counseling, get counseling. God uses that to help. The central issue is whatever it takes for the two to be one, that is what I am driving for. What we are after is not simply not divorcing. It's two becoming one. Now, as I close, let me remind us that the gospel is central in all of this, as it is in everything. When Paul talks about marriage in Ephesians 5, he quotes the same verse Jesus quotes here from Genesis 2. The two will become one flesh. But Paul says that's really about Christ and the church. It's ultimately about the gospel. And Paul tells us there that Jesus has provided the model for how sacrificial love is enacted to build our marriages. So I can really, you can take those two lists and you can pretty much summarize it and say, is this something Jesus would do, say, think, act towards the church? If the answer is no, don't do, say, think, or act it. If the answer is yes, then do. Okay? Jesus provides the model. But secondly, it's related to the gospel because our marriage is a picture of the gospel. And let me tell you the scary thing. Your marriage is being a picture of the gospel one way or another. It's being a good picture or it's being a bad picture. But it is being a picture because God said that's what it is. People cannot see Jesus and the church. They can see how I treat Linda and how Linda treats me. And they can see how it does with you. And this is why we cannot settle for less than oneness. Because otherwise, the picture is the relationship between Jesus and the church is somehow we're going to manage to not kill each other through all of eternity. That's not the picture. The picture is the new heavens and the new earth are coming down, and God is one with us, and we are his bride forever and ever. And friends, we dare not 
dare not proclaim anything else by our marriages. And let me say, one of the reasons, you need to really search not much further than this. If you want to know why sometimes the church seems so impotent in American culture, we want to pass laws regarding marriage. We will get out and we will protest over it. We'll do almost anything except for the work of the two becoming one within our own household. And we're not doing anybody any favors by doing that. If the church were a place where people said, wow, two are one, regularly, consistently, that would adorn the gospel powerfully in our culture. And last thing with this, and then we'll pray, is our marriage is fueled by the gospel. You know why Linda and I forgive one another? And there's been much practice on her part to forgive me. Because usually, if something boneheaded has been done, you can guess where it was done has been. Linda's made marriage very easy. What fuels that is, as Christ forgave her, she forgives me. And as Christ forgives me, I forgive her. And whatever we have done to one another pales in comparison to what we have done to God. And yet, he displays covenant love to us. So the, the gospel is the picture of our marriage, our marriage is a picture back of the gospel, and then the gospel is what fuels our marriage so that we can become one. Let's stand together, and we're going to conclude in prayer. And I want to pray for the marriages in our church. And then this week, you can go out and apply the word. We'll, we'll have a winter dance later, but much more importantly, how do we do this tomorrow? When we wake up, we've got a choice. So which will we do? Father God, I thank you that you have shown us what you desire. You have shown it by Jesus coming, living and dying for us. And Father, I thank you that even as Jesus was here doing that, he cut through all of our ways of going about things, Lord, where we constantly want to know how close can we get to the edge and Jesus, you always drove right back to the center. And I thank you that you reminded us what marriage is about. And Lord, I thank you that when you made Adam and Eve, you brought them together, your goal was not so that they could somehow manage to just coexist. I thank you that the first words that were spoken about the two of them together is that the two will become one. Father, that is your desire. Lord, we confess that so often we have done things that separate what you have joined. And Lord, there is no excuse. There is nothing that can justify what we have done. So we humbly confess and we repent for ways we have done it in our own life, in our own marriage, and in ways we have supported and acted to undermine that which you were doing in someone else's marriage. Father, forgive us. And Spirit of the living God, we pray that you would empower us, that you would fuel us by the gospel, that we could practice forgiveness and love and mercy, and that the two would be one. Father, I pray for the marriages within this church, whether they are strong or whether they are struggling. 
I pray that you would be at work by your mighty Holy Spirit and that we would not give rest to ourselves until we are on the path of the two becoming one. That we, by your Holy Spirit, would say we will not give in to our sinful nature, we will not give in to the voice of the enemy, but we will stand by the word of God, we will hope in the power of God so that the two will be one. Father, I pray for the marriages here that you would strengthen them. Father, I pray that you'd encourage. Father, for those who are younger couples that are in the midst of having children and building their careers and all of the things that are going on where it can become so stress-filled, Father, I pray that you would encourage them. I pray that you would help them. Father, I pray those of us who are not in that spot would even jump in and help them. Father, I pray for those of us who've been married for a long time and maybe things have become hardened and we don't even think that we can break out of them. But Father, you raised Jesus from the dead. You are a God who calls things that are not as though they were. You are a God who gives life to that which is dead. You are a God who can create the entire universe by the power of your word. And so, Lord, we pray you would speak that powerful word into our marriages. Father, where there is hopelessness, I pray you would give hope. Father, where there is sorrow, I pray you would give joy. Father, where there is confusion, I pray you would give clarity. Father, where there is division, I pray you would bring unity. Father, I pray that you would do this for our good. Lord, it's what you have made for us. Father, I pray also that you would do it for your glory. I pray that in a world that needs the gospel, I pray that I can look at our marriages and they would say, that's how Christ and the church love one another. That I want. Father, may we adorn the gospel by our marriage. Father, I ask that you would do all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, may the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else. May he strengthen your heart so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of God our Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. Go in the peace and love of Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.